This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. On our panel today, we have Eric Berry. Hey there. And Chuck will be joining us in a minute. I'm David Kamira, and today we have a special guest, Luke Fransel. Hi. Luke, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you work for, and what you've been up to lately? My name is Luke, and I work at GitHub on Search. So I have been at GitHub since October last year, and... Before that, I was working at another company. And before that, I worked at a search startup that was built using Rails and Elasticsearch. And so that kind of that experience like made me want to get back into search. And that's how I ended up at GitHub. Cool. Yeah, and GitHub has had some pretty exciting news lately, a few months ago. That is true. So how's that transition looking for you? Or is that kind of still in the download? The transaction has not closed yet. And so until it's closed, like we have to operate, it's a law, like we have to operate as an independent business and not take any guidance from Microsoft or anything. So, you know, for us at the company, it's kind of business as usual. We're just trying to keep our heads down and keep doing good work. And I'm sure that'll continue after the acquisition too. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I remember way back when, when if you wanted to download something open source, you went to SourceForge and then they just became a nightmare and GitHub was like (laughs) my go-to place for uh, any kind of open source. So, Yeah. It's it's kind of uh, surreal to work at GitHub, I guess, in some ways because of the impact they've had. Um, And, you know, being a a recent employee, I obviously had no... uh, influence on that or anything. <laughs> so it's, it's cool to work, uh, work at GitHub and, you know, get to contribute in some small way to that. that yeah. Something that important. Yeah. Well, the search feature is huge. So what, what are some of the things that people take for granted with the search that, you know, it's actually like super complicated on the back end that no one really just really appreciates? Yeah, I think one of the things about search that makes it a difficult problem is just how used to good search people have gotten because of Google. You know, over the last decade or so, Google has like really stepped up the game in terms of like what people expect from search. So just like, I don't know, if you think of how like WordPress search works, like it's a it's a like with wildcard on either end query mm-hmm. for the search terms. Like people won't tolerate that anymore. So they expect their search to just work. And so they're they're very frustrated when it doesn't just give them the right results. But that level of sophistication is actually really hard to implement. And it requires a lot of, uh, you know, pre-processing of the documents and feature extraction and feature classification and that kind of thing. And then on the on the search end of it as well, like you have to classify the query to try to figure out what they're probably searching for. And then do your best to give them the best results. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had some uh, experiences oh. with GitHub. Back in October, I actually came and visited their their office. It was pretty amazing, and we were at the um, a code sponsor, which is uh, my company. Uh, actually, sponsored GitHub Universe last year, mm-hmm. and we're we're sponsoring again again this year. So it'll be pretty fun to get out there and view the uh, you know all these changes that are coming about. One of the questions that I don't know if you can speak to or not, but it's a big question for us is like, it seemed that GitHub, at least over the past year or two, has been very focused on its, in, in my opinion, after, you know, after everything's said and done, has been pretty focused on just like, let's wrap this thing up in a bow and sell it. Um, <laughs> and 
when it moves on, I guess it's it's more of a, a speculation, but I'm hoping that once Microsoft comes in, there can be more focus on open source as far as giving back to open source. Because as you know, a code sponsor had, uh, or you might know, code sponsor and GitHub had a lot of conflicts, uh, unfortunately. I'm hoping that they can come back and say, you know what, we're going to open the doors again, or we're going to allow developers to actually generate revenue for their open source and provide a way because like it or not, GitHub owns open source. And I guess now Microsoft now owns open source unless we all decide to get off. Do you have any, any thoughts on that or any insight on that? Or, or what, what's your view on that? I mean, just as an outsider, I really think it's been impressive to watch Microsoft really commit themselves to open source. You probably saw some of the press when the acquisition was announced, kind of yeah. pitching Microsoft as the biggest contributor to open source on, on GitHub. So in effect, in the world. And I think that's pretty impressive. It, it, it speaks to the current CEO's leadership that he's turned that company toward in that direction. So I, th- I think it's, it's really positive. As, as far as like people getting paid for open source, I, I don't, you know, I, I have no insight into any plans on that. But I, I do know it's, it's, it's a big problem. Like, if you look at most open source projects today, like, they're either you know, kind of an individual contributor's um, personal passion project or, and then unmaintained usually, uh, <laughs> right. or like a big company's product that they're like, you know, Kubernetes or something like that, where it's like, you know, clearly like a strategic initiative that they're investing a lot of resources in. Right, right. Do you work out of the, uh, out of the San Francisco office? I do. Um, so I'm here in San Francisco and... I actually go to the office less than I thought I would because most of my, I mean, GitHub is extremely remote. And so none of my colleagues on my team actually work in San Francisco. So I, you know, and we, we spread across many time zones too. So I'll have meetings that are very early in the, in the day, my time, um, and are in the afternoon in like Europe or whatever. So I get up, I have my meetings and have some coffee and, you know, by the time that's all over, I'm like, well, I could go to the office or I could just stay here and keep working. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But uh, as you said, the office is amazing. I was actually in, like, there was um, the architects who designed our addition, the, the the new office space. I'm not sure if you saw that, but they they came by to take some photographs for an article that they were writing up about, like, you know, their design process for it. And I, I happened to be, like, sitting on one of the couches, like, doing some writing. And they're like, do you want to be in some photos? And I was like, uh, sure. So, <laughs> so I'm in a bunch of these pictures, like, showing off the office, which was pretty funny. That's way cool. The yeah, when I went there. They yeah so I went into the oval room the uh, the incident room I can't remember what it's called uh, yeah the uh, situation room that's what they the call situation it. room right and then afterwards they took me into that back room that looks like a an old timey like nineteen uh, fifties liquor like place where you go and smoke cigars I thought that was pretty pretty fascinating <laughs> yeah that room is really cool it, we were told not to take pictures of it because they're like this is for hovers only like you know right you're. Uh, you know, your privilege just to see this or whatever. <laughs> it, it is very cool. It's a, it's definitely atmospheric and, and fun to take people into. I also really like in the, in the new edition, there's a library um, and it's, you know, filled with yeah. books. I remember that. Yes. It's, it's very quiet, except that the, <laughs> the office upstairs is like right above it. And the, the floor is very thin. So if they're like playing music or like walking around or bowling or whatever they're doing up there, you can hear it. <laughs> Wow. So what led you to work over there? What was the process like of getting hired at GitHub? Getting hired at GitHub? Uh Um, So I wrote this article about writing a query parser because it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of something that I'd always wanted to do and kind of talk about like why you would want to. And when I, when I started working on that, I realized like I, I have worked on search for a really long time. This is actually the third time in my career I've worked on search. And so I was like, I, I have a lot of experience in this and it's kind of a, kind of a waste that I'm not using it. Um, and so I started looking for roles that were kind of congruent with that. And it, you know, it just happened that GitHub was looking for a search engineer at that time. And um, so, you know, they saw my article and were pretty excited by it. And then also, you know, I had to pass the interview too. Um, but the interview process is, um, it's pretty interesting actually, because it's not, 
at least, you know, for the org that I did. And I don't think in the company in general, it's not like whiteboard, like reverse a, a binary tree kind of questions. It's much more focused on like coding and collaboration, which are, you know, big company values. Uh, I mean, collaboration, I mean, is a, is a big company value. So, and, and, and very important when you work distributedly as they do. So th- you know, I found the interview process enjoyable. It's also kind of unique in that it's done remotely these days. So like it's done over Zoom and, you know, you do it in your house or a quiet place instead of like having to f- fly people to the office. And Thankfully, that's, uh, that appears to be the way of the future. And honestly, speaking as somebody who recently started, like I've been working from since January and it's been like... Uh, to be able to see my family more, to be able to have the freedom of coming and going and, and not have uh, all the meetings, all the meetings. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. So I'm glad that it is going that way. And on top of that, I think that it provides a lot of allowing talent to come from anywhere instead of just your local area. You can build a much better team if you are remote uh, optional or remote only. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's um... It's been interesting working in a company that's like devoted to that because I've worked at companies before where like a couple people, you know, a few special people or whatever would be remote. And it's just not the same. Like they miss things and they're just not as involved in the discussions. And from the people I know who work in that kind of situation, it can be very lonely. But with a, you know, with I think 60% of the company or so is remote. And so the company pays a lot of attention to trying to make sure that everybody has a good experience and is engaged. Yeah. So the purpose of the talk today is to go over Rails diffs or Rails uh, incremental upgrades. So do you want to speak a bit about that and your process of upgrading Rails applications? Sure, yeah. So I wrote this article about upgrading a Rails application incrementally. It was kind of... So to be clear, I didn't actually work on this at GitHub, but as the you know as we were working on upgrading rails i was giving some experience that i had had with doing a similar upgrade on a much smaller scale and just kind of like some of the problems that i ran into and you know difficulties so i took kind of that experience and i wrote it up and i think like basically there's there's a couple ways to try to do a rails upgrade like you can try to just stop all development and do the upgrade. And I think if you have a small app or, you know, don't have a lot of gems and custom extensions and that kind of thing, like this can actually work. Like you just take a a few days or whatever and and just get it over with. Um, Especially if it's not a hard upgrade. I think, I think some versions of rails are harder to upgrade (laughs) between than others. Mm -hmm. So if if it's an easy one, like it can be pretty easy. And if you have a, a good test suite and you're pretty confident, then that's that's a decent way of doing it. Uh, another approach uh, is like a long-lived upgrade branch, and this is where you basically have you fork your code base essentially and try to get on to Rails while other developers are still working on new features and stuff in the main line. And this is just a nightmare. Like I've never actually attempted this myself, but uh, I worked with a, a colleague at a previous job who who did this, and he, you know, he's one of those coders who's like a one-man army who just. Uh, can produce incredible amounts of code and it's very productive, but like against like 20 or 30 other engineers, like there's no contest. Like it was, he was just completely bogged down with, uh, you know, incompatible changes and fixing merge conflicts and stuff like that. And the, the other problem with this approach, of course, is that like people on the main line can be breaking stuff in the new version of rails, like without even knowing about it, because it doesn't affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other approach, and th- this is really, I think, laid out by um, Shay Frent. The, the final approach is like incrementally up- upgrading Rails. This uh, is kind of based on the approach that um, Shay Frent wrote about when um, GitHub upgraded from Rails 2 to Rails 3, which was one of those really painful upgrades. Um, and th- the approach here is essentially to conditionalize the different behavior. Um, there's a few... Like uh, Rails is actually like fairly compatible between versions, but but always there's some different behavior changes. But usually you can um, conditionalize it so that like on Rails two, it'll or three or whatever it'll do one thing, and then you can like 
have an if statement and get the other behavior or like emulate the old behavior, for example, so that your application behaves the same way. And if you do this along with having two gem files, you can you can get your app booting under two versions of Rails, two or three or four or whatever. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that, but <laughs> you could do it. Uh, you can get it booting under multiple versions of Rails and then um, kind of fix all the problems that you come across like slowly. And once you have your test suite green under the, you know, the, the new version, like theoretically you could just switch over. But um, what, what I did and what uh, GitHub has done with, with the upgrades that are going on right now is essentially to, to roll it out first for internal testing. So uh, click testing. I mean, a good test suite is absolutely essential to doing this, but it's never going to catch everything. And there can be like weird changes, especially like, you know, the asset pipeline has changed a lot and things like that. It's just, you need to look at the site to make sure it's still working. So doing that kind of thing, and then you can move towards sending a small percentage of traffic to the new version. And then, you know, recording, you need to look for two things. You need to look at like exceptions, 500s and stuff like that, where it's like literally like broken. And then also look at performance issues because, you know, things can change a lot and, uh, you know, a query might be generated differently or, or the caching might behave differently, things like that you need to take a look at. And then once you're confident in that, um, you can actually, you know, flip it over 100% and then finally rip out the the conditional code and then, you know, get rid of your old gem file and bam, you're on the new version of Rails. Yeah. You know, the thing that I found most difficult, and it's really changed the way I develop, is the number of gems I introduce into a Rails application. Because as you said before, a lot of these gems start off as a passion, but then go unmaintained, and they lock in specific active record versions or whatever. And then you're kind of screwed if you've really heavily depended on that gem within your application. So a lot of times, unless if it is a mainstream gem, like device or carrier wave or something, I'll really wait, does this gem even need to be within my application? If it's a JavaScript library or something like that, it's not even doing anything but just adding in some JavaScript code into my asset pipeline. You know, I'll consider using Webpacker to manage the version or something else, just grabbing the actual source JavaScript file, throw it in my vendor folder, and then include that. You know, saying much closer to the Rails core is going to make your life a lot easier in upgrading your Rails applications incrementally or through hard versions. Uh, yes, I, I'm nodding so hard at everything you're saying. <laughs> uh, in, the, in the Rails upgrade process that I led, like, we, we had a meme that we made called burn all gems because like one of the things that we had to do was, I mean, the, really the first step, the first thing you can do before you even try this is you have to get your, your bundle file, like actually even be able to bundle with the new version of rails. And that mm -hmm. means you have to go through all these versions of gems that you have and figure out if the new version is compatible with both the old version of rails and the new version of rails. And a lot of times they're not like at my old job, we used, Mongoid, like the MongoDB object document mapper or whatever you want to call it. And they released a version, like they, we were stuck on version three and then they released a version four that was compatible, you know, was compatible with the newer version of Rails, but then they, you know, rewrote it again for five. And it just like, it wasn't, we couldn't go from three to four. There was no version that was compatible with both versions of Rails. And so we had to like monkey patch and, and do a lot of conditional code for all of that. So yes, absolutely. Like dependencies are, I mean, they're a blessing and a curse. Like they, they definitely add a lot of complexity to the upgrades. And so I think every time you're thinking about adding a dependency, you really need to look at that code and you need to think, do I really need this? Or can I, you know, implement this functionality myself? Um, it's not, I mean, not invented here is like a real problem, but, you know, you don't want to get into like a left pad situation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, also Rails, I think, does a very good job of deprecating. They don't just remove stuff between versions. They usually have a period where you will get in your logs deprecation warnings. And ignoring those or trying to filter those out is definitely not to your best interest if you plan on maintaining this 
application for a period of time. So taking note of the deprecation warnings and even reviewing the change logs that Rails publishes between every release, I think is also really important to just become aware of what is going to have to change within your application. Because a lot of times you could just do a search and back to the whole gem issue, a lot of those gems in your search of your application won't expose if they're using things that are being deprecated. You do have to check the Rails logs. So that's just another reaffirming point to minimize the number of gems in your gem file. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, I, d- I don't think I put this in the article, but that's a, that's a great first step to making sure that you can have a smooth upgrade. Um, some, like I was saying, some upgrades are harder than others. Like three, two to four was, I think, a pretty hard upgrade. But mm-hmm. the current upgrades are a lot easier. And so, you know, if you can get your, you know, Rails four two app to not have any deprecations, you can go to Rails 5 pretty pretty simply. At GitHub, they've upgraded from Rails 3.2 to 4.2 and are now working on the jump to 5. And it's like the amount of time it took to do 3.2 to 4.2 was huge. But the amount of time it's taking to go from, from 4 to 5 has been a lot smaller. I mean, that's, that's both because there's a bigger team working on it now, but also because like they've built up this process and like the know-how to, to get these upgrades done and the changes are just smaller. Yeah, I remember upgrading applications from Rails 2 to Rails 3, having to completely rewrite my routes file. Uh, I mean, it's real time consuming. So absolutely, some versions are definitely harder to upgrade. And one thing I love doing, and there's an awesome website for this, it's called railsdiff.org. And it'll show you if you create two new Rails applications, it'll show you the difference between those two different versions. So you can go into your configuration files, remove the old things that are getting removed and add in the new things that's in the new version. Just so your config files, I think are often overlooked, are now current as well with the new version. Yeah, that's a great tip because a lot of times, I mean, those config files don't get regenerated, right? So like you'll be running with without some of the latest and greatest config options that you really want. Like, you know, if, if the way that cookies have uh, been signed has changed, as, as an example, like you, mm-hmm. you might not get that unless you uh, actively take, uh, you know, change your config. And that can be important too, because like the, usually Rails versions will have like an upgrade path between the point releases. So like, you know, three, two to four, there was like, you know, some code added to make sure it could read the old cookies and write them back in the new format, right? But like, if you try to jump from like three, two to four, two, like you might miss that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I don't know if anyone's ever tried using the uh, helper task or the rake task that Rails has for upgrading your application, but it is so destructive. That's one thing that I wish they would just take out. Because, I mean, chances are you're not upgrading a normal, fresh Rails application to a newer version. And essentially what it does is asks you to uh, overwrite or append or uh, see the diff between the config files. And if you're like me, that just answers yes to everything sometimes, <laughs> you can just destroy your configs. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I guess... It- Hopefully you have it checked in so (laughs) you can go back. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. We've gone through a similar situation back when I worked for a company uh, a handful of years back. And in fact, we hired uh, a company to come in and help us decide how to convert this this huge Rails 2.6 app into what we wanted to do at the time, I think it was upgraded to Rails 4. And the code, it's an open source uh, LMS, 
Um, and the code was so big that to, to be able to take it and chop it all off and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to uh, refactor this, there was absolutely no way. So the way we ended up doing it is we would take a tiny feature and then slowly shard off these features into a different, a different version that we were, that we were co-running. And that, that was like the only way that we could really do it with that many live users and that much code. It, it was the only way that we could find to do it. So yeah, very much along the lines with what your post was. Yeah, that sounds even like more incremental. Like you, you're basically like spinning up a new app while keeping the old one running and like shifting model by model or controller by controller over onto the new one. It's interesting. I, I feel like uh, Rails has a, a reputation of being hard to upgrade. And, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of examples of companies that have run old versions of Rails for a really long time. Like the, the company I worked at, we were running Rails 3.2 for like four years and before we decided to upgrade. GitHub uh, was running Rails 3.2 for even longer, um, long past the time it was supported. Um, and I, I just wonder what you think about like, if that's like a problem for Rails. Does, does, does Rails need to take upgrades more seriously or like do more to make them easier? Um, or... You know, is it just people being, I, I don't want to use the word lazy. I want to maybe like optimizing for their business. <laughs> I, I, in my experience, I think uh, two to three and also four to five, I've had issues personally. In fact, I've hit a wall where I'm like, all right, screw it. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to leave it in four and, and keep that going. But five to uh, five, one, five, two, like all of those, those, those upgrades have been, you know, not difficult at all, but I think it's, it may be acceptable to say that the upgrade isn't going to be like absolutely seamless and super easy because those changes are so critical to making the framework better that there should be a level of expectation that the developer will have to work for it. However, you know, there's, there's always guides on how to upgrade, right? And as long as those guides keep coming, then I think it's not that big of a deal to do it. It's just going to, it's going to be a pretty big commitment. Now, when you get behind multiple versions, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, what do I do now? Um, that's, yeah. that's probably, you got to keep that in mind as you're maintaining a product. It's like, even if you might not be in the code every day, when new versions, like new, uh, you know, full versions come out, it might be worth upgrading. Yeah. At, at some point you have to rip the bandaid off and it, it becomes, as you get further and further behind, and especially if you've added a lot of like, unusual dependencies um, or just a lot of dependencies in general, it just becomes very painful. So it's definitely better, um, I think, if you can to keep upgrading along with the framework so that you don't get stuck on this. And I think, you know, I think the leaders of the Rails community kind of do that. Like, uh, I think Basecamp famously runs, uh, you know, master or whatever for their, their, uh, their application. So they're, I mean, they're actively using the head version of rails yeah i usually yeah. give it a bit of time before i try to upgrade a production application to a newer versions of rails even a, a minor version just because i do have to rely on some gems that are slow to be maintained and a lot of times they are locked down to specific rails versions and trying to just do a bundle update rails is always a nightmare so I usually delay and not run bleeding edge on some applications that are larger, but on other smaller applications that have a good test suite. And that's one thing that you said before that I think is really um, undermentioned in the community is having a good solid test suite that tests your core application, you know, that has a good coverage. Because that's going to give you number one confidence that your application is working the same way it was before. And then you can go through an acceptance test to make sure that things are still clicking the way they should. Yeah, definitely. Like I would not want to try to upgrade an app that didn't have decent tests. I think I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm sure you could do it. But like, if it's a big enough application, and you have like, actual users like it's not going to be it's not going to be a fun time i don't know i mean the tests in my experience both with like you know the upgrade that i i personally worked on and then you know just seeing what's happening with github's upgrade it's like the tests do not catch everything i actually called this out in my article like one of the things about tests is that they run in a fully consistent environment 
like even if you're testing you know rails version a and rails version b and running all the tests under both of them like those tests all run under the same version of rails at the same time but when you roll out a change like it doesn't go out to all your servers at the same time and then you flip the switch like you know you're draining connections from the old version and bringing up connections on the new version and so they're they're running at the same time, if, at least for a while. And depending on how you do it, it might be running for, a, for at the same time for a long time. Like we, uh, in the upgrade that I worked on, we had multiple environments. So like we had a worker environment for our rescue workers and we had like a web environment for our web app and an API environment for the API. And, you know, they had different unicorn pools and all this stuff, but we upgraded them one at a time. So like the API servers were running Rails 4 before the website was. And that can cause some interesting problems because cache objects change, cookies change, uh, format. Um, it's just not the same application in the same way that it runs under the tests. Yeah, and I would also caution anyone who is upgrading to something like Rails 5.1 or 5.2 to use new features like active storage or whatever it may be. Hold off on implementing that until you have rolled out the new version of Rails. Let it be stable in production for a small period of time and then start implementing some new features. Because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where you've changed too many variables at the same time and then you're not sure what broke what and then your ultimate solution is to just roll back to Rails 5 or 4.2 or whatever. Yeah, definitely agree on that. Like, it's um, much better to change one variable at a time. Like, it's very hard to figure out what broke when you are changing a bunch of things. Um, kind of riffing off that, another thing that is can really help with upgrades is um, many of the new features are often backported as gems, and that can really ease your upgrade um, path. Um, I mean, for example, in, in Rails 4, one of the big new features was strong parameters. And, you know, that's a completely different way of authenticating, or I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, validating request parameters versus mm -hmm. what Rails 3.2 had, where it was all in the models. And so there was kind of like, fortunately, they kind of released two approaches to that. Like they backported strong parameters to Rails 3.2, and they also you know, release some of those deprecated features as gems. So like, I, if you're just trying to get to the new version and you, and you need to use some deprecated features as gems for a while, I think that's totally okay. Like your goal is to get onto the new feature. It's not to like, or, I mean, your goal is to get onto the new version. It's not to have mm -hmm. like the most purest Rails app of all time. You can fix that stuff later. Like getting onto the new gems is like really the critical thing. Yeah. And I remember when Turbolinks had their big changes and stuff. Uh, within the core repo, all you had to do was include it, was a compatibility JavaScript file, which allowed your old Turbolink stuff to kind of work with the new. And it also fixed a lot of the document-ready functions and stuff, made it a lot easier to slowly transition to upgrade your code while still being on the new version. Of course, I might be the only one who uses Turbolinks, but I like it. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> what are you talking about? Turbolinks is incredible. Ah, I use that all the time. I use it in my in my uh, Phoenix project. Mm -hmm. It really is. I think it's very underrated just because it got such a bad taste in people's mouth a long time ago when there were a lot of issues with things not firing or firing multiple times when it definitely should not be. I'm curious to hear more about the uh, Turbolinks in Phoenix. So this is like an Elixir app and you are also using Turbolinks? Yeah, it's it's open source too. You're welcome to look at it. It's uh, github.com slash gitcoinco slash codefund. And yeah, in fact, it was such an easy addition that it took roughly... So I added in, uh, in my build, I added Turbolinks, which is two lines of code, right? And then after that, you have one small snippet that you add where basically you say on uh, Turbolinks uh, load, I believe. I have to look it up, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah, it was, it was so easy. And so people, I think, look at Turbolinks and think, oh, this is a, a Rails thing. But it's really not. It can be used for anything. And the amount of value it provides right out of the gate, it's like instantly your page feels more single page appy, if that's a word. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, GitHub, I, I think it's kind of a precursor to Turbolinks, but we use uh, PJAX a lot, which mm -hmm. I forget what the P stands for, but basically it's like it's like Ajax, but delivers HTML and just replaces uh, certain elements 
um, on the page. And it, we use that a lot to make the, the experience seem a little faster because like you don't get the full page reload. Yeah. We actually use both TurboLinks and we use uh, Stimulus. So yeah, we, we're drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what I'm looking for. We're drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, personally, with the addition of Stimulus, I find that there's really no need to go with a JavaScript framework like React or Angular Review. That I mean, between TurboLinks and Stimulus, you're going to get that native app feel along with the simplicity of staying with the Rails core pathway that they have modeled over the years. Yeah, I'm very far from like front-end application development right now, but um, at my last job, I, you know, would look at the code that the JavaScript developers were writing for our front end. <laughs> I was just like, what is happening here? I don't understand any of this anymore. <laughs> it, was, it was a weird experience. Um, I don't know. It's, it's clear that you can build some pretty amazing things with, uh, with these uh, front end technologies, but I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned and, and uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to create something that like sort of just works and just works the way the browser expects it to work with the, the more traditional approach. Mm-hmm. I think there's two sides to that. I had lunch yesterday with a, a, a good friend who's pretty big in the uh, React community. And he, um, and I asked him like, oh, why not just do uh why not just do stimulus? And he said, you know, stimulus is great, but the problem with that is that you are confined to very old techniques and old ways of doing things where if you want to have the type of dynamic interface that that you can get through these front-end frameworks, it's going to be really, really complicated. And plus, you get a whole bunch of stuff for free when you choose React or when you choose Vue or when you choose one of these things because there are all of these components that are pre-built for you. Whereas when you come in without that and you, you're basically relying on HTML or relying on your bootstrap or whatever you might be relying on to provide the same type of interface so uh, or interaction. So I, I see both sides of the argument now if you if you have a small team you want them to maintain small team and there's not a lot of need for highly interactive interfaces great stimulus is perfect but the moment you get into something a little bit more complicated all of a sudden stimulus goes from something that's really simple to something that's like oh i feel like i'm kind of monkey patching a little bit so where is the line drawn at something simple to something more difficult or highly interactive let me give you an example so one of the things that I'm working on with CodeFund is we, so CodeFund is a, is a platform that displays ads for developers so that the developers can get money for open source. And part of the platform allows the developer to log in and basically choose which ad they want to show, choose and modify the ad. Not, not modify the ad, modify the theme and the template. Well, what I want to do is create a way that they can go a little bit further and say they can tweak the way it looks on their website and that that component that I want to do, it's cumbersome in stimulus. So moving that to something like React or to um, to View or something would enable me to have a better better control over the interaction. Uh, I think many and here's another example in the in the previous company I was with, we had um, we. Uh, Stimulus didn't exist at the time, but we used jQuery. And when we wanted to create a section, it was a text messaging platform that is essentially like an inbox for text messages. Well, we wanted a lot more control as far as as far as uh, UI tweaking, where they can say, okay, click here and it'll show checkboxes, click the checkbox, it'll show different options, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, doing it in jQuery became difficult. So what we did was we inserted just like one component within this huge Rails monolith uh, in React. And slowly it became to the point where, oh, we probably want to move the whole thing over to React. But that's, I think that's when the pain of creating it in jQuery and stimulus becomes like, uh, should I have gone the other way? It's probably time to go the other way. That that matches my experience too. Like jQuery, I'm, I guess jQuery is old and tired. Nobody uses it anymore. You can You can do it all with just, raw javascript in the browser these days but but that with that approach like trying to keep multiple things on the page updated when something changes is is difficult and i mean there's a lot of web applications 
that I won't name where you can, you can definitely tell things like that are happening where like, you know, the title, like the title didn't change, but like the content did stuff like that. Um, and that's because of that approach. Whereas like if you go full hog on, on react, like it sort of solves that problem, but you have to rewrite. I mean, you kind of have to redo everything to be their way. And so it's, it's a, yeah. it's a big thing to bite off. But I think if you do have like a very interactive application, it, it makes sense. Um, there's just, it's, it's very difficult to like get that level of, of polish and experience without using something like that. I've, I've looked at our commitment to, to react in the past. It's almost like a marriage. You know, you got to go through that that stage of dating and make sure that this is something you're willing to commit to. And then once you're married, it's like, okay, now we can really, you know, we can buy the house. We can start like planning kids and having kids. And then if you decide like, uh oh, I don't like you anymore. It's time for a divorce. Like life sucks at that point. Right. So now you have to go back and like, oh, how did I, why did I give up these many years of my life? I'm like speaking as a divorced person. So I know what I'm talking about, but yeah, you got to go through and like, oh, what if I did this during that time? What if I had decided to make these decisions instead of that decisions? And then you have to go and basically rebuild what kind of toppled, but it's very much like a marriage. Yeah. I'm trying to extend your metaphor to the plethora of javascript front-end frameworks i'm just i'm just not going to go there that, that's a polygamous marriage <laughs> uh, that's funny was there any other tips or tricks people should know when upgrading their rails application or anything to look out for i would say like one other thing that uh we haven't really talked about much is uh just measurement this is i think super important like you really need to have good metrics um, so you can, I mean, both with exception tracking and stats D type metrics, you need that kind of stuff if you're going to try to do this incrementally because you, you need to have good visibility on how things are rolling out and whether it's working or not. So if, you, if, if you're you know, contemplating an upgrade and you're looking at your code and you're like, this is not in a good place, like the places I would invest, I would invest in tests, that's so boring, I know, but like, just take those critical paths in your function in your app and make sure that they're well tested, and then add some metrics. You know, get get a really good Grafana dashboard, or use one of the, the new services that you can just you know sign up for, like Datadog. Make sure you've got exception tracking that's tagging like which version of the app and what servers and stuff like that it came from, so you can slice and dice. Uh, you can do that with tools like Sentry. Um, this this is going to be absolutely critical when you're trying to roll it out because you need like when things go wrong you need to be able to like pinpoint oh that's what happened and now I know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing we could talk about is like whether or not it's worth it. And I think w- one of the reasons why Rails upgrades go Rails apps go non upgraded for so long is because it's so easy to prioritize other things. Um, yeah, that's so true. You know, it's the tech debt. It's like so easy to accrue tech debt. Yeah, I'll pay it off tomorrow. I'll pay it off next week or even better yet. I'll pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. But when is the right time to say, you know what, this is an acceptable loss. And I do have experience in this as well. Um, I'll share my experience first is I used to work with a company where we moved so quickly that living on prototypes was worth it. We, We planned on lifespan of a single product to be less than a year. And then we would move on to something else because it was always like, let's throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. So in that case, it really became testing and, and making sure that we are up to date really didn't matter. But beyond that, I really can't think of many reasons why we wouldn't do that. Yeah, I think in, in my experience, it was, it's, it's, a, it's always hard to pick the day where you're like, all right, now we're going to do this. At my last company, like what happened was Rails 3.2 was going out of you know the support cycle. Like it wasn't going to receive security updates anymore. And that made us really nervous. Like, because that's a that's a big risk. Um, you're taking on a lot. Um, you know, GitHub is a much bigger organization um, than my the startup I worked at is or was. And you know, they maintained for a long time their own fork of Rails 3.2. And they backported security features and uh, stuff like that. And that's just a ton of work. Um, so at some point, like it becomes worth it to, to do the upgrade. And when it, it, I think it's hard to make the case, 
but you do, it's kind of like an investment. It, it is like paying down debt. Like it, it's an investment that you're making in the future. And so if you believe in the future of your, of your company and of the product, then I think it's worth doing. Because once you are on a mainstream version of Rails, like you get access to new features, you can start using active um, storage and action cable and things like that, that just aren't available on the older versions. There's, you know, performance improvements are, are added regularly. Like, active record, query generation gets better. Like all these things that you get access to uh, are unlocked when you upgrade. Um, but as far as like trying to make that business case, like it is pretty hard, I think. Yeah. Yep. One other thing I've heard about is like, if you get a reputation of being a company where people are on the ancient, ancient versions of things, like that's also not good for recruiting. So <laughs> take that into consideration, I guess. There's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. You know, we, I've, we were talking on, I'm also on the Elixir Mix podcast, and we were talking about the choice of technology is sometimes solely for recruiting. And Elixir, at some point in some companies, makes its way in because it's a really shiny object for new developers to join with. Now, whether it's like the right reason or not, I mean, Elixir's pretty awesome, so it's probably a good enough reason, but nonetheless, it, it does play a, a, an impact in it. And having been on the hiring side as well, it, it's something that you have to take into consideration. Like, for example, Elm. Elm is, we were discussing this the other day. Do we want to bring Elm into our project? Yeah, it's a super shiny object and it might do a great job, but there's just not enough market out there. So even if it might be the right tech for the job, it's not something that we want to commit to because we have the bus factor, right? What if our developer gets hit by a bus? All of a sudden, we got to find somebody to replace them. It's going to be really, really hard to do. Yeah, that's for sure. I think that there can be many right tools for the job. If you know what I mean, like Elm is pretty cool, uh, but you could also use TypeScript or something like that. You know, it's not, it's not like there's only one choice and that's the only one that's going to work. Uh, Rails yeah. is a great example of that itself. Like Rails, I think in a lot of ways, is still very far ahead of most other competing frameworks because it's just, it's just like so productive to work in a modern version of Rails. Like you can get so much done and it's, it, Every time that I go away from Rails, I start missing things. I'm like, oh, migrations just work. And you yeah. know, it's it's really nice to have these integrated tests and fixtures and all the all the stuff that you're just kind of like, you know, take for granted in Rails. But no one's gonna argue that Rails is the only way to build a web app. Like there's a hundred different ways to build a web app. Right. It's the only right way. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's that marriage analogy again, you know, if, if you're building an app that you know might require concurrency down the road or might take off and become something absolutely monstrous that, that Rails might not be able to scale with properly, maybe another tech is the right way to go. But, you know, we interviewed DHH last, last year and Rails still is the 80% framework, right? You can write probably 80% of the apps out there using Rails and have it be good enough, quote unquote, good enough as, as DHH put it. And I agree, having moved over to Elixir, um, now I'm running an ad platform, which is pretty stupid if I wrote it in Rails, which it was the first version, but still, because it requires like such massive concurrency. However, every other project that I've written is in Rails, and I prefer Rails over Elixir solely because of that productivity that you're talking about. Yeah, and I think it's telling as well that your first version was written in Rails. Like, Absolutely. Didn't work to a point, but like, you know, it got you going and you got your data model sorted out. Uh, Rail, I think Rails is great for that. Yep, 100%. Well, cool. Any other discussion points or should we move on to picks? Yeah, we can move on to picks. All right, Luke. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, where should they go look? Where do they find you on the internet? Uh, so they can find me on Twitter. I'm at LOF. Um, and I have a blog called uh, recursion.org, which I um, have been writing very, very sporadically since like 2002. So <laughs> uh, th there's a lot of good stuff on there. It just doesn't get updated very much. Cool. All right. Uh, Eric, do you want to kick us off with picks? Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. 
I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Yeah, you know, I'm going to just share one today, and it's it's something that I use every day and I kind of take for granted. Um, it's uh, called Navicat Premium Essentials. So what it is is a client for Postgres and any other type of database that you can think of. Super simple, excellent product you can get on the Mac App Store, but I use it all the time. If you're looking for a great uh, client to access your local data or even production data or anything like that, it's a, it's a wonderful tool. Doesn't it have like a two or $300 price tag with it? It does, but I bought it so long ago that I got it really inexpensive. Cool. Yeah. So sorry, I'm throwing out a rich, a rich person thing, but yeah, all you <laughs> developers, you're all rich. <laughs> I wish uh, Postgres really had a, like a top tier open source client like MySQL does, like SQL Pro, for example. It's mm-hmm. I, I love the Postgres database, but like it's it's still true that the, the clients just are not as good. Yeah. All right. I'll kick in there with uh, some picks. So I do a lot of screencasting on Drift and Ruby, and ScreenFlow just released their version eight, which fixed a lot of the annoying things in their previous versions. So ScreenFlow will be one of my picks, and yeah, it's for the rich kids. Also, it has a hundred thirty dollar price tag, but if you are on the Mac, if you need to do screencasting or videos, it's definitely an excellent option. And my other pick is LED light bulbs. I love LED lights. I put them on my car. I put them in my house, throughout the house. And Costco has, you buy a six-pack of LED bulbs for like $10 or $15. It's a great deal. So LED light bulbs. How about you, Luke? So my pick is uh, one that, my, all my coworkers are really tired of me talking about, which is uh, the book Designing Data Intensive Applications by Martin Kleppman. Um, this is a book that I wish I could have read 10 years ago because I feel like it would have saved me a lot of pain and heartache in my career, uh, just about like all the things that can go wrong with distributed systems. Um, it, it It's a terrific book because it just... Uh, it, it just surveys the whole field of like how data is stored in, in applications from, from like, you know, how databases store data to how transactions work to concurrency and um, distributed transactions. And it, it was just so interesting to read this, this, this book. And, uh, you know, I keep re- recommending it to people and be like, like, I'll, I'll see people talking about a thing and I'll be like, it's in the book. <laughs> and it's very readable and very, um, very relatable. And it's it's definitely influenced me in the last year or so. So it, it just came out, I think, uh, last year or whatever in, in paperback. And I, I definitely recommend you uh, pick up a copy. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show today. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right. See you all later. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.